book two chapter eleven part one of tasker jevons the real story by may sinclair this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine book two her book chapter eleven part one it was late in august before jevons found a country house large enough yet not too large and old enough yet not too old he would have nothing that even remotely suggested the tudor period and in the intervals of looking for his house he wrote another novel and two more plays there was a decided falling off in all of them and i think jevons himself was a little nervous he said he'd have to be careful next time or they'd find him out once he had settled the affair of the house he would set to work and strengthen the position which after all he hadn't lost he had gained if anything nineteen thirteen stands as his year of maximum prosperity even the house in mayfair justified itself when he let it with all its principal rooms furnished to an american railway magnate at a rent that enabled him to indulge the passion he had conceived for amershott old grange he used to say he would never have been happy again if he couldn't have had amershott old grange everything about it seemed propitious they had found it by a happy accident when they weren't looking for it weren't thinking of it when they were trying to get out of sussex and back to london after a long day's motoring in search of houses nothing that essex or kent or buckinghamshire hertfordshire was ruled out by the presence in it of the registrar or surrey or hampshire or sussex so far could do had satisfied them and jevons was beginning to talk rather wildly about oxfordshire and gloucestershire and wilts and even devon and cornwall when they lost their way in the cross-country roads between midhurst and petworth and so came upon amershott old grange it was hidden behind an old rose-red brick wall in a lane and it was only by standing up in the motor-car that they caught sight of its long line of red-tiled dormer windows the very notice-board was hidden staggering back in an ivy bush that topped the wall i won't have a house said jimmy that's a day older than queen anne no more would viola and the old grange was not a day older than queen anne or a day younger it was the most perfect specimen of a queen anne house you could have wished to see the long straight front the slender door the two stories with their rows of straight flat windows and the steep brows of the dormers over them it was all rose-red brick and rose-red tiles with roses and clematis bursting out in crimson and purple all over the front it stood at right angles to the wall and to the lane and there was a long grass garden in front of it with walls all round and herbaceous borders under the walls and from the high postern door in the outer wall opening to the lane a wide flagged path went all the way in front of the house to the door in the inner wall that led into the kitchen garden and the orchard further down the lane were the doors of the courtyard at the back of the house where the outhouses and the stables and the dovecot were and beyond the courtyard there was a paddock and you would have thought that was enough but besides his queen anne house and his gardens and his orchard and his courtyard and his dovecot and his paddock jimmy had acquired ten acres of moorland to say nothing of a belt of pine wood that ran the whole length of his estate behind the kitchen garden and the paddock and the moor and the whole business of acquiring this property went without a hitch he took it on the long tail end of a lease from an impecunious landlord who couldn't afford to keep it up he obtained possession by september 
and in the early spring of nineteen fourteen he was settled in amershott old grange they furnished it as they had furnished the house in edwards square with the most complete return to beautiful simplicity jimmy polished off a short novel and a play between october and june and kept himself going on the proceeds of his old novels his old plays and his old short stories collected in a volume then i think he must have sat down to wait events for when we went down to stay with them we found him waiting he was entirely prepared for certain contingencies if anybody knew anything about english social conditions it was tasker jevons he had calculated all the chances and provided for the ostracism that attends the inexpert invader of the countryside he was aware that there were powers in and around amershott that were not to be conciliated the very fact that their territory lay so near the frontier amershott is only sixty-seven miles from london kept them on their guard to any good old county family tasker jevons's celebrity was nothing if it was not an added offence and his opulence was less than nothing in settling among them he ran the risk of being ignored but when it came to ignoring jimmy considered that success lay with the party who got in first so before he settled he took care to diffuse a sort of impression that the tasker jevonses were never at home to anybody that it was not to be expected that a great novelist and playwright would have time for calling and being called on even if he had the absurd inclination he had one solitary introduction in the neighbourhood and he worked it very adroitly not to obtain other introductions but to spread the rumour of retirement and exclusiveness his arrival preceded by this attractive legend became an event you couldn't even affect to overlook it and if it was not possible for jimmy to subdue his features to an expression of complete ignoring he had got in so promptly with his attitude that it took the wind out of the sails of any people who were merely proposing to ignore then having come amongst them as a shy recluse jimmy began instantly to focus attention on himself he hadn't been six weeks in the county before he had become the most conspicuous object in it i don't know how he did it you never really caught him at it and yet when you came down to stay with him you felt all the time that he was doing it you felt a sort of shame a shame that he couldn't feel in seeing that he did it so perpetually and so well he had a way of making his privacy a public thing there was something positively indecent in his detachment it advertised him as no possible immersion could have done i've seen him lying out on his moor basking all by himself in the sun i've seen him meditating all by himself in his pine wood i've seen him sitting in his walled garden with the apparatus of his business all about him when you would have said that if ever a man's life was hidden and withdrawn it was tasker jevons's and yet it wasn't you knew it wasn't and he knew that you knew he knew that his gardener and his chauffeur and his butler and his cook and his housemaid and his parlour-maid knew that he was sitting in his garden writing or meditating in his pine wood or basking on his moor in the sun and that their knowledge penetrated to every house in the village to every house in the county within a radius of twenty miles and when he was not doing any of these prominently tranquil things he was tearing about the country in his motor-car i have never seen anything like jevons's motoring it was in this new aspect of his that he was i think most remarkable i say he made his privacy a public thing but in the furious publicity of his motoring it was the other way round 
he turned the public roads into a private track through paradise i do not mean that he was a road hog far from it he had the most exquisite manners of the road he would slow down for a hen in the distance and upset himself into the ditch to avoid a rabbit i have known him with his first car give a lift to any filthy tramp between midhurst and portsmouth i mean that the act of motoring transported him and he did these things instinctively mechanically without interruption to his rapture speed and the wind of speed the air rushing by like a water-race as he ripped through it the streaming past him of trees and hedges the humming and throbbing of his engines were ecstasy to jimmy he had learned to drive the thing and his sense of power over it gave him the physical exaltation that he craved for i believe that when he sat in his motor-car driving it he was filled intoxicated with the pride and splendour of life he had power over everybody and everything that lay in his track except other motor-cars and he exulted in his knowledge that he could annihilate them and didn't he enjoyed voluptuously his own mercy that spared them through his motor-car he attained such an extension of his personality that he became intolerable to other people and unrecognizable to himself and yet i do not think that even at the height of his ecstasy he ever really forgot that he was tasker jevons the great novelist and playwright in his motor-car when he drove you through portsmouth or chichester or even through little midhurst you felt that he thrilled from head to foot with self-consciousness he knew and had acute pleasure in knowing that people noticed him as he went by that the tradesmen turned out of their shops to stare after him and that everybody said see that chap that's tasker jevons he always drives his own car he owned that he enjoyed it i remember the first time we went down to stay with them it was in may of nineteen fourteen when he was driving us through midhurst from the station how he said to us i'm glad i thought of living in the country it makes me feel celebrated we asked him if he hadn't ever felt it before and he answered solemnly never for a minute never i mean like i do down here in london if you do gather a crowd round you you're swallowed up in it besides you can't always gather a crowd do you suppose if i were to drive down piccadilly in this car short of standing on my head i could attract the attention i've attracted to-day you saw those fellows come out and look at me well they do that pretty nearly every time furnival no london's no good too many houses too many people too many motor-cars you can't stand out what a man wants to set him off is landscape fernie landscape you should see me on the goose green at amershot towards post time well i did see him on the goose green towards post time and i saw what he meant it was really as if i'd never seen him before properly heavens how he stood out it was as if a stage had been cleared for him and for the figure he cut he was quite right you couldn't have done it in piccadilly or even in the suburbs and he wasn't in his motor-car mind you then he was simply strolling over from his house to post a letter in the village on the green and i do not know how he contrived to infuse into so simple an act that subtle taint of advertisement there was no necessity for him to post his own letters he could easily have sent a servant but i do believe he couldn't bear to miss the opportunity of being seen when he passed the vicarage the vicar and his wife and daughters were generally in their garden and they turned to look at his passing and he was exquisitely conscious of them the villagers came out onto their doorsteps to look at him and he was conscious of the villagers 
the geese followed him in a long line across the common and stretched out their necks after him and he was conscious of the geese he enjoyed the publicity they gave him and he said so and i began to wonder whether the funny frankness that had so disarmed us was really as funny as it looked the idea of disarmament you see was serious whether he didn't say these things because he knew we saw him as he really was because he saw himself as he really was and couldn't bear it because there was no escape for him unless he could make believe that he was in fun when he really wasn't i do believe there was a time any time before his tutor period when he was in fun pure fun and even through the tutor period his enjoyment of himself was innocent but as i walked home with him across his moor that evening it was borne in upon me that jimmy's innocence was gone living in the country had killed it i had never perceived so definite a taint of vulgarity in him before you would have thought it would have been all the other way that living in the country would have made altogether for simplicity and purity i believe that quite honestly he had thought it would that he had come into the country to be purified and simplified and to put himself right with viola forever and the horrid irony of it was that the country didn't do any of these things to him it complicated him it saturated him with that taint i've mentioned and instead of putting him right it showed him up quite horribly and cruelly it showed him up i do not think there was a single weakness or a single secret meanness that he had that didn't suddenly rise up and stand out on the background of amershott all through that summer there quite frankly i detested jevons i believe that nora came near detesting him that she felt something very like contempt for him and if nora felt it you may imagine what viola would feel she was with us one evening it was june i think and our second visit when jimmy showed most unmistakably the cloven hoof we had come in from a long motor drive and he had made at once as he always did for the silver plate in the hall where cards left by callers were put if any callers came i can see him now breathing hard i can see the glance he cast at the cards and the little jerky curb he put on his excitement he had the grace to be ashamed of it and then i see him holding four cards in his hand sober and quiet and flushed like a man who has triumphed solemnly and i hear him read out the names lord emerley lady emerley lady octavia emerley the honourable francis emerley that's all right i gave them three months and i see viola look at him taking in his figure in its motor dress and his face with the foolish weak elation he couldn't for the life of him keep out of it again i see him with his little dreadful air of fervid solemnity and i don't know whether i dreamed it or whether it was really there very spruce and strutting about the lawns of amerley park at that garden party they took us to and later on in the very beginning of july it must have been i see him on his own lawn at his own garden party and i didn't dream it this time he was really dreadful instead of carrying it off with the levity that had so often saved him from perdition there was that revolting triumph about him and an uneasy eagerness as if he knew that his triumph wasn't quite complete but the garden party was as he would have said all right they were all there those people he had given three months to he had pulled it off precisely as he had schemed and calculated those legends of his detachment and his hermit habits 
had been worked so as to excite a supreme curiosity and it was being satisfied and i cannot tell you whether he was really altered or whether he had been like that all the time before amershad had shown him up and none of us had seen it except viola oh no it's impossible he had altered if he had been like this we must have seen it what viola had seen if she had seen anything was only the foreshadowing the bare possibility of this charlie thesiger was at that garden party he had retired from the service with the rank of captain and it was at the garden party that i had first noticed a change in his manner to his cousin's husband he used to treat jevons with a certain superciliousness and with as much amusement as much perception of his absurdity as was possible for charlie who perceived so few things now i was struck with a correct young man's deference to his host it was really as if it had at last dawned on charlie that jevons was his host and that he had other claims to distinction as well the more dreadful jimmy was the more courteous charlie showed himself to jimmy and this in spite of the fact that jevons had a way of treating charlie as if he didn't matter as if for all recognizable purposes he wasn't there when i spoke of this to norah she said that viola had told him that if he couldn't be decent to jimmy she wouldn't have him there well there he was hanging about viola from morning till night he had any amount of time on his hands now and he spent most of it at amershot he was there when we weren't sometimes so that we couldn't keep track of him but his purposes ought to have been apparent to us i think it was partly because he was aware of them himself that he went out of his way to be decent to jimmy almost as if he were sorry for him beforehand for it was evident enough that viola liked his being there and liked to have him hanging round her there was nothing about him that shocked or grated i've no doubt he made himself entirely charming his manners could be as beautiful as any of the thesigers when he chose and they soothed her i think she had ceased to feel them as a reproach to jimmy she had given up his manners poor dear long ago as a bad job it was as if she had slaked her thirst for the unusual some secret and strong revulsion had thrown her back on the people and the things that she had been brought up amongst and that she had run away from when jimmy jarred on her she turned to charlie for relief and after all as nora said he was her cousin i don't think we either of us saw anything more in it than that without some such reaction she must have surrendered to amershot she couldn't defend jevons against that showing up she couldn't defend herself against those revelations she could only stand by and look on at his enormity and shudder unless she had put her dear eyes out she must have seen that in the country he was not only a bounder but a snob and she must have writhed in feeling that to see him that way was to be a bit of a snob herself she had accused herself of snobbishness long ago before she married him when in order to marry him she had burned her boats what could she do she couldn't put her eyes out but i believe she would have been grateful to anybody who would have put them out for her i can't tell whether she was always unhappy i rather think she had liked amershot the house and the garden and the pine wood and the bit of moor and i am certain that she liked motoring almost as much as jimmy did at first she could even take pleasure in jimmy's power over the car when they were alone with it in the open country when his pleasure had no taint in it i've heard her say when he wanted to run down to chichester or portsmouth oh for heaven's sake 
let's go somewhere where nobody can look at us she must have regarded the open country as the last refuge of his innocence for her more than for any of us he had lost it how far he really lost it we shall never know even now with all my lights with that intense country light fairly beating on him i can wonder am i saying these things because i think them or because i believe i must have thought them then and i cannot answer my own wonder i remember how at amershot when i sat beside him in that car of his and watched his ecstasy i used to pull myself up and say to myself you know he isn't like that look at him what woolly lamb could be more simple and innocent than he is now and if anybody had come to me and asked me if i didn't think that jevons was a little awful i should have said that if you were a little awful yourself you might think so but not otherwise my conscience has told me that as he became more successful i became more critical it has even suggested that i may have been jealous of his success but that was in the days they were comparatively innocent of his first motor-car round that car there really is a light of romance and of adventure a glamour that isn't at all the glamour of his opulence in those days he did look upon a motor-car mainly as an instrument of pleasure and not as a vulgar advertisement of his income in june at any rate he was still the master of his car and not as we saw him later on its servant there never was anything like that first fury of his motoring it couldn't last he was wearing himself out those early excesses exhausted his capacity for pleasure and when we came to stay with him in the last two weeks of july we found him apathetic about motoring but not about motor cars as far as the cars went he had developed into an incurable motor maniac he was never tired of talking about carburetors and tires and petrol and garages and gear he dreamed of these things at night every day he invented some extraordinary contrivance for increasing speed and lessening friction he knew all that was to be known about the different kinds of cars and he would roll their names on his tongue panhard and fiat and daimler and mercedes and rolls-royce as if the sound of them caressed him like music and the first car which he had mastered it was a comparatively cheap one but it wouldn't be fair to say what kind it was for the poor thing had gone to pieces under his hand in six months he had served her his chauffeur said something cruel that first car had been sold for a hundred and fifty pounds and viola was mourning for it when we came down in july we couldn't think why she mourned for he had bought another we supposed that the new car had broken down for we were met at midhurst station by the local cab proprietor but we were very soon to know that nothing had happened to the new car and that something very serious indeed had happened to jimmy he had gone mad you can only call it mad over his new car end of book two chapter eleven part one recording by expatriate in bangor maine